and I've been assigned the privilege of speaking on learning to fight the flesh, which this week I was very tempted to call CJ and report that Keith even asked me, much less with a straight face, to address learning to fight the flesh in a single sermon. Uh, I resisted that. It was a battle, but I resisted the temptation to call CJ. Uh, We have a lot of ground to cover. This is a huge issue. The Bible has so much to say about how we fight against indwelling sin. So this is not going to be necessarily expositional, drawn from a single passage of Scripture. We're going to be running all over the New Testament. So I included a lot of these passages in your your outlines. Um, Let me just say that in terms of the fight against the flesh and the fight against indwelling sin, what we what we must have, and we've talked a lot about about this, but we're not going to build it so much into the, the points this morning, is we must have a fruitful life in prayer and we must have a fruitful life in God's word. God's word is the sword of the spirit, which we use to vanquish our foe, to fight against sin. So. As we read scripture, remember, you need to be back here tomorrow. (laughs) This is not sufficient. You cannot fight the flesh with a weekend sermon that's been handed to you every Saturday or every Sunday. You've got to fight with your own practice of the spiritual disciplines, going into God's word and letting him equip you with armor for the battle. Uh, Well, we've got a lot of work to do. So let's uh, let's pray. I feel like Luther, who's. He often said, because he had a ton of stuff going on, he's got a reformation he's leading, he's got a family, he's just a lot of stuff. Um, And he said, I have so much to do today, I can never get it done if we don't stop right now and pray. (laughs) So I feel the same way as we look and embark on the foothills of the monstrous topic of indwelling sin. We need to pray to ask God to help us get along in this topic. So would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, we ask for your grace to be at work, renewing our minds, instructing us, awakening our hearts to the realities of this battle. Lord, for those of us who operate in our Christian lives with a casual and cavalier attitude, I pray that you would wake us up and rouse us from our sleep. And Lord, shake us by the scruff of the neck so that we take seriously the fact that there's an enemy who takes his job very seriously. And and I pray, Lord, that all of us would leave here uh, not only with a sense of sobriety about the fact that we are in the battle, whether we realize it or not, the battle is upon us now. Not only that, but Lord, that we would leave here equipped with some tools, some instruments, some weaponry for this battle. We need you, Lord. We need your Holy Spirit to illumine our minds and to empower us for this task. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have a confession to make. This won't be news to some of you, but there is, there is some area in my life where I am a card-carrying nerd. And the main area, I think, for nerdiness to express itself <clears throat> is my love for language. I love... Language, I love words. I love the English language. If I knew other languages, I'd love them as well. But I I know English, so I love English. And uh, this this nerdiness, this expression of my bondage to dorkdom is was kind of hit a high point in the year 2000 where I was working at Northrop Grumman. And during my lunch breaks, I would bring my American Heritage Dictionary 
and I would get my mechanical pencil, two clicks, open the American Heritage Dictionary. I started with the letter A and just started to flip through and I would put a dot next to every word I didn't know. And then I would add that to a spreadsheet document, which was titled, for those of you who love words, you'll love this title. This is, this is great. Augmenting Linguistic Potency. All right, what's that mean? Augmenting, anybody? Okay, I didn't hear any of that. (laughs) Augmenting, increasing linguistic language. Okay, words, yeah. Potency, power. All right, so increasing word power. And I would add, I would add all these words to this document and I would review it during my lunch break and make progress in building my vocabulary. I made it through about the letter I before I quit this project. And, but, I, you know, I don't do that anymore, thankfully. Thankfully, I've been set free from, from that practice. But I still need an outlet. I need, and those of you who love words, you know you need an outlet. I need an outlet for learning new words and for venting my love for language. And the new outlet is my nine-year-old son gets vocabulary lists from school. So I get to look at those vocabulary lists and I get all giddy when I get to go over a new list. The new list comes in. It's like, yes. And so I'll go in the office with them. We've got the whiteboard. I'll write all the words for the vocabulary list. And then I'll tell them a story. And as I tell the story, I'll pause and point to the word that fills in the blank. I'll stop and he'll say the word. Then I'll put a check mark. And the, the object of the game is by the time I've finished the story, I've used each of the words two or three times. And then I ask him, what's the word mean and all that fun stuff. And it's usually a lot of fun. And we've done it several times before and tell all kinds of different stories. And, but recently, the most recent vocabulary list right before the school year was ended, I came up to Hunter. I'm like, Hunter, there's a new word list. And he lacked the appropriate enthusiasm to go over the new. I totally did not understand it. It was wrong. It was it's an issue in his heart that he has to work through. And so I'm all excited and and he's not reflecting that or echoing that back to me in any way. And so I said, well, Hunter, let's do something different. Instead of just marching into the story that I'll tell about these words, why don't you tell me what kind of story you want to hear? Do you want, you know, a a battle, kind of a good guy, bad guy story or some other kind of story? And he said some other kind of story. And I was disappointed um, because I think the best stories are good guy, bad guy stories. And then I was immediately milliseconds later, I was discouraged because I don't think I can tell any other kind of story. That is the kind of story. A story has got to have conflict. And I can't just tell my son a story about, I don't know, a patch of flowers in a field or something, that patch of flowers at some point has got to come under attack, whether it's a, a, you know, a charging rhino or a drilling rig or a weed eater or something. It's got to be put in peril or else it's not a story. And so it ended up being instead of a, a good guy, bad guy, it was a man versus nature kind of thing. Will was trapped in the Grand Canyon. Two mountain lions were attacking him. So there was still conflict. I couldn't get away from it. The Bible's the same way, though. The Bible is not a story about a patch of flowers in the field. <laughs> the Bible is a story about a battle, a raging battle for the heart of man. For our hearts, for our allegiance, for our loyalty to the God who made us for his glory, who made us to relate to him, who made us to enjoy fellowship with him. And so the Bible from the very beginning in the book of Genesis all the way to the very end is a cosmic warfare. It's a book about conflict. And this battle takes place on many fronts. 
C.S. Lewis said every square inch of creation is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. So our battle takes place on three fronts. Luther called this the unholy trinity. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Two of these battlefronts are out there, so to speak. They're out there battles. So the, the battle against the world. That doesn't mean that we hate ecology or we want to chop trees down. It, it doesn't mean any of that. It means that there's a world system in which we live that is fundamentally anti-God. That there are ideas that spread throughout every generation. Sometimes they change and they move from this category to that category. But that there's always an environment and an atmosphere in the world that is contrary to God's purposes in the world. God's purposes in creation or in salvation. So that's the world system. But beyond that, I mean, so the world system can either attack us by by marshalling and propagating explicitly atheistic ideas. Or, more often, it can just get us to subtly buy into valuing what the world values. Things like materialism. Having to have more stuff. Having to keep up with the Joneses. That's the world system. We live in it. We breathe that air. We need to be aware. That's a battlefront. Not only that, there's this personal being that animates that, that that gives movement to all that is evil in the world. And that personal being is the devil, Satan. And he's been there since the beginning, instigating, conspiring, drawing troops, drawing forces, creating arguments, creating ideas and generating those through any kind of media outlet that he can get his hands on. These are realities. But the most frustrating thing about spiritual warfare in the life of the Christian is not, I think, the out there battle. It's the in here battle. It's the battle that's going on, as Keith just said a moment ago, in our own hearts. (laughs) Because the world and the devil have an ally in our flesh. They have an ally in this battle, and that ally is like a mole living inside of us. I had, for many years, a recurring dream through my childhood into my adulthood where people would break into my house as I was, you know, a little boy in the room. And the dream would happen so faithfully and and so it would be the same every time where even in the, you ever had this, even in the dream, you know what's about to happen? It's a really strange thing. And they would come and they would pull up in a Mustang in front of the house and I I would see them out there and I would go and run and grab my, 20-gauge shotgun, crack barrel. This is the best part. I would just get so excited. Actually, I was terrified every time it happened. But, but you imagine, it's one thing to have to look out of your people and to see. There they are. They're coming in to kill us all. It's one thing to think that. It's another to think that while we were away at the mall, three of them snuck into the house. And they're in the attic. And so after we fall asleep... And then we see the lights pull up out the window when we look outside and we see them and they start beating and pounding on the door. And I go to grab my shotgun. There I'm greeted by somebody in the house with me who's attacking. Now, the the scale of battle has just gone up several notches because there's somebody inside. There's an enemy within. Galatians 5, verse 16. This is in your outline. 
But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. William Gurnall has probably written more on this topic along with John Owen, than anyone else in church history. Matter of fact, he wrote a masterful work on spiritual warfare called The Christian in Complete Armor. 800,000 words. Charles Spurgeon said, it, he said, quote, it's peerless and priceless. Greatest work in uh, Christian literature on the topic. He says this, Gurnall says, the spirit lusts against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit throughout the whole course of a Christian's life. Isn't that exciting? Were there no devils, listen to this, were there no devils, you would still have your hands full resisting the corruption of your own heart. Satan comes to the battle as an ally of the flesh and launches a massive attack. Listen, here's the effect of this quote and this truth in Galatians 5. This knowledge should make every one of us diligent. What's that word? You say that? Diligent to keep our lusts Unarmed. Now, what do we mean by the flesh? The flesh doesn't mean your skin, your physical body. Your skin doesn't make you sin. Turn to James, would you? Chapter 1. After Hebrews, you bump into James. James 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say you're drawn away into sin by the sensual image that was put in front of you. Or we're enticed into sin by the fact that we work in an environment that promotes selfish ambition and dishonesty in the workforce. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that we're led away when suddenly possessed by the devil. No, it says you're led away by your own desires. Flip over to chapter 4. Warning against worldliness is the heading that I've got in my Bible. It says in verse 1 of chapter 4, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Ever wonder why you get into relational conflicts the way that you do? Why you've been having an awkward relationship with, that, with your boss or with that person in the office or with your roommate for several months? What's the reason for that? What's the source of quarrels and conflicts and fights between people? Well, James says... It's that your heart wants something that you're not getting. It's much more simple than we think. (laughs) 
There's something going on. There's a craving that we have. And that craving can be any number of things. It can be, I just want self-time. And you don't get it. Or I want peace and quiet. So when the kids come home from school, your anger seems to come in with the tide. Is that because the kids are that way? And the kids forced you to sin? The kids caused you to sin? No, they came in and you wanted something and you didn't get it. And so your heart enticed you. Your heart led you into sin. Maybe we crave the good opinion of others. And somebody says they want to ask you a question about something you said in covenant group. Maybe something you said about your husband or about your wife or about your friend. And they want to follow up with that. And the implication you get is they're about to, could it be, identify a problem, a weakness in your life. Maybe that your heart wasn't in the right place. That would, me? Could you possibly think that about me? Come on. And so we have this craving that everyone think that we could never, ever be characterized by a weakness. And so when somebody even gives the impression that they might have seen something, we react and conflict erupts. And we're willing, we so have that craving and that desire that we're willing to damage a relationship to make it plain. That we love this thing, that we have a passion for this thing. Affirmation. Your friend goes out to a movie without telling you. You feel slighted, not affirmed. Result? Conflict. Maybe you want to be right all the time. And so in the midst of an argument with someone else at your workplace, you just keep pressing and pressing. You'll even bluff to win. You'll even say, three months ago when this happened, you don't have that stat in your mind. You don't even know if it really happened. That's how much you crave it. Maybe it's getting new stuff and that craving is so strong that when you have a tight month financially, everyone in your house knows you're not happy because you can't get the new things that you've always loved to get. There always has to be a constant flow of new stuff into your life, into your wardrobe, into your house. Maybe it's craving to be mentioned or remembered. Whatever it is, usually our cravings associate associated with whatever it is that we identify as our utopia for the moment. What it is that spells relief. Remember the old commercial, how do you spell relief? Remember the commercial, the Calgon commercial? Whatever spells Calgon for you, that's the thing that when it gets pushed or pressed, you come out guns blazing. And that's because of indwelling sin. James tells us if we don't fight the flesh, it will grow up and kill us. That's what it said, right, in chapter 1? Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown up, brings forth death. So that thing grows up. It gets arms and legs. It grabs a billy club and it beats you to death. We've got to take our indwelling sin seriously. We've got to keep a monitor on our hearts. As Gurnall said, we have to keep our lusts unarmed. And that takes proactivity. It takes vigilance. God, many points in the Old Testament, guaranteed victory to Israel. Oftentimes, that did not mean without a fight. If, if G.I. Israelite goes out on the battlefield after God said, you're going to win today. I'm going to give them into your hand. G.I. Israelite goes out and when Amalekite swings his sword, if Israelite doesn't duck, he's going home in a body bag. That's the reality. But God guaranteed the victory. Yeah, but you didn't duck. You didn't swing the sword. You just let the 
the guy hit you. Surprise, surprise, you went down for the count. Well, spiritually, we can do the very same thing. We can act as though, hey, I'm just resting. What? This is a battle. It's a battle against the world and the devil, and it's a battle against your own heart that wants things and craves things that will kill you if you feed them. We need a well-rounded biblical description of the believer's relationship to sin. And what that means is the Bible emphasizes both the already and the not yet. Both the indicative, which the indicative is what God has done. It's sealed. It's been done by him for you. It's settled. That is what you are by the grace of God. We need that indicative. We have got to leverage the power of the indicative. We'll talk about that in a moment. We've got to leverage the power of the indicatives to obey the imperatives. But we also need the imperatives. We need to hear what God says to us, what God commands us to do for our good and for his glory. We need both of these. The Bible talks about them. The same Bible that says you've died to sin, indicative, already, says put sin to death. The same Bible that says you're not a slave to sin says don't be enslaved to sin. That references, you can look this up later. The same Bible that says you were sanctified says pursue sanctification. Same Bible that says you were cleansed says be cleansed. Let us cleanse ourselves of that which defiles the flesh and the spirit. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The same Bible that says you were made righteous says pursue righteousness. And it adds without which no one will see the Lord. Do we need to pursue the imputed righteousness of Jesus? Do we need to pursue the imputed righteousness of Jesus? The answer is no. That is the indicative that is given by faith and faith alone. Do we need to pursue practical righteousness? Absolutely. And without it, Hebrews 12, 14 says, you will not see the Lord. Very serious. Already and not yet. The same Bible that says you have the mind of Christ says you must renew your mind. This is a classic verse. I'd encourage you to memorize this. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Who's working in this passage? God and me. Right? Matt, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Matt, now's not the time to sit down. That time will come. Now you fight. Now you work. Now you strive. How you fill your mind with my word and let it wash over your soul. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Matt, get my word in your heart. And as you do that, I'm the one propelling that. I'm the power behind your striving for obedience. We live between the times. We live between the inbreaking of the kingdom and the consummation of the kingdom. But the kingdom is not yet consummated. This is not the moment where the lion lays down with the lamb. Again, Luther said, if the lion lays down with the lamb, now you'll have to keep replacing that lamb. Today we fight. These are days of war. The kingdom of God is broken in and the power of Christ's atoning work and his indwelling spirit are being leveraged now in our lives so that increasingly we walk in newness of life. And we walk and we grow in real, functional, practical, everyday holiness. That's our call. Now, let me clarify. Failing to walk perfectly. You see that list on the not yet side, the imperative side. Failing to walk perfectly in the not yet 
doesn't erase the already's. No, far from it. The already's secure the power to pursue the not yet's successfully. In other words, the fact that we have been washed, we have been set apart and sanctified, is the means, is the reason that we can put sin to death. God has done something that gives us faith to see. God has begun a work. He's going to complete it. When I swing the sword, his power is going to be at work within me to vanquish the enemy. Well, let's talk practically a fistful of truths for fighting the flesh. I want to get through five of these. The first couple will be longer and the last few will we'll get through a little more quickly. <clears throat> Number one, don't shrug off the warnings. Hebrews 3, 12 through 15. Take care, brothers. We could have we could have brought in dozens of these. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Who's he talking to? Brothers, believers. An evil, unbelieving heart leading you, believer, to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed... We hold our original confidence firm to the end. If you ask me, Matt, do you believe that you belong to Christ? I would say yes. That you have been given the gift of eternal life. Yes. That you've been justified, not by your works, but by faith in what Jesus has done, Jesus alone. Yes. Do you believe that having been justified, that your justification only lasts until your next sin? Or is your justification eternal is your justification once for all is it a guarantee that you will never be condemned i would say yes justification forever for all time once and for all do you believe that your works contributed to your salvation no do you believe that your works cause your justification to be canceled your lack of performing perfectly does that cancel the payment jesus made for your sins i'd say no do you believe the warnings in the New Testament apply to you? Yes. Do you believe that if you fail to heed the warnings, that you might fall into sin, be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, and perish eternally? Yes. How do you square that? Luther said it this way. We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Genuine faith always, always issues forth in works that redound to the glory of God. Read Ephesians, the classic text, 2, verses 8 and 9 and 10. Where 10 talks about we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's in the same context as the passage that talks about grace alone, not by our works. Genuine believers will persevere. They may fall temporarily. They may fall grievously, but they will not fall finally. Remember what, what Jesus said to Peter. Peter, Satan's asked to sift you like wheat. It's not going to be a pretty picture for you for a while. But, what's the next word? When you return, strengthen the brothers. What a strong word of consolation. When Peter experienced that 
flailing of his soul on the part of his enemy. And then he remembered the words of Jesus. Peter, you will be back. So genuine believers will persevere. And to a great degree, please hear this, to a great degree, they will be kept from falling by means of taking the warnings seriously. A genuine believer will never look at the warning passages in Scripture and say, that's for somebody else. I don't have to watch my own sin. I don't have to watch the patterns in my life that put me close to worldliness. I don't really need that. I'm good. I'm settled. I'm fine. No, a genuine believer doesn't sound like that. Paul didn't sound like that. The writer of Hebrews didn't sound like that. Peter didn't sound like that. It's hard for Peter to sound like that when he fell himself. Grievously. Take the warning seriously. Look, at night, we pray as a family. We try to pray nightly as a family. And, and we pray for the needs of people that we know about, issues and friends or family members. Usually, and I've been trying to do this more regularly because for a long time, kids never heard me pray this way. But recently, I've been praying in their presence for their souls, for their salvation for God to rescue them from the world, the flesh and the devil, from the corruption of their own hearts, for him to put in them a heart that understands the gospel and that endures the afflictions and the torrent of the world so that they their faith lasts until they die. And as soon as I finish praying that, I pray the very same thing for my wife and for me. So that they hear there's something about this Christian walk that requires that we keep going and going and going. So they hear me say, God, keep my heart from the sinfulness and the deceitfulness of sin. Keep me from forsaking you. Keep me from becoming an agnostic somewhere down the road after life slaps me in the face. Preserve my soul. Because it won't be preserved by me on my own. Don't assume you'll never fall. Chris Lungard said, you know, the flesh has made a breach in your defenses when your heart's hardened by its deceitfulness so that you are careless about sin. You will look at your life and think about how often you need God's forgiveness. And so think of it as something common, nothing to worry about or take pains over. You'll know you are hardened when you begin to extend the boundaries of Christian freedom to include indulgences that in the past would have shocked you. Your flesh will whisper to you that strictness and anxious care about obedience are legalism. The gospel came to deliver you from such things. And besides, if you really do commit a sin, you can be forgiven later. Please don't assume you'll never fall. Matter of fact, you would do well to assume that you will if presented the right opportunity. That's called walking circumspectly, the New Testament talks about. Walk carefully. Be careful. The days are evil. Every New Testament book says that. Don't be surprised by it. That may go a long way to keep us on guard against the flesh. 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Can you hear in a text like this, Paul thinking about Demas? Or Demas, it says in one, one passage, it's revealed that Demas is a part of Paul's, he's a part of the pack, the band of brothers who are going throughout, planting churches, establishing their faith, preaching the gospel. 
taking rocks, running out, being driven around like fugitives. And there's Demas in the pictures with blood streaming down his face with Paul and Timothy and Silas and Luke. Demas is in the picture. And Paul says in one of his New Testament letters, he says, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Demas played lightly with sin. You hear Paul when he's exhorting us to action to take seriously the movements of indwelling sin as they grow and gather strength in our hearts. You hear him saying, remember Demas. Don't go back. You've been washed. Romans 8.13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Listen, passive neglect and active rebellion lead to the same place. Both are destructive. Chris Longard said, it's not necessary to plan to murder or lust or steal or lie in order to give your consent to sin. All you have to do is willingly neglect the means God has given to put an end to sin. Meditate on that quote. Number two, we have to move on. Put the indicatives to work. Paul is working with a church. He's seeking to encourage his church in Corinth. It's a church that is deeply carnal in practice. And so Paul steps in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and he's bringing some adjustment. <laughs> but notice how he does it. Verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11. Okay, he's wielding the power of the indicative. Such were some of you. But you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So what? So stop acting like the world. That's not you. You are not that way. God has done a decisive work in your heart to save you from that. Reckon it to be true. Live as though you believe something's taken place in your heart that gives you power to defeat sin. Let me just share a brief word about the law and our sanctification. When we think about the warnings, when we think about the commands or the laws of God, we need to be real careful the way that we talk, because God's law is good. God's commands are good. They are not obsolete in the sense that they have no more purpose for the Christian life. That is a false view of the law. God's law... Well, let me clarify it this way. Though God's law is good, it's one thing to say, I see the value of the law of God. It's another thing to think that the law is going to empower obedience. That much the law doesn't do. The law doesn't lift a finger to help you obey God. Matter of fact, the only thing the law does with its fingers is point. It points. It points at three things. It points at your sin and my sin. It shows us What's going on in our hearts it shows us our subtle rebellion against the ways of God. It points at that. It says, I see that. Do you see that? I see it in you. The law does that. Then, to keep us from despair, the law points us, Galatians says, to Christ. 
to the perfect law keeper who saves us, who alone can save us. The law can't save us. It points at what's wrong, but it can't help us with what's wrong. It points at what's wrong and then it points those who are wrong at the Savior, Jesus Christ. It points twice and then it points again. Having pointed us to the one who saves, it points at what pleases God. It points to concrete expressions of the will of God for your life. It's still important in that respect for all Christians. The Puritans call that the third use of the law. I think that's probably the most neglected use of the law. It doesn't save. For that, we look to Christ and the gospel indicatives. We believe them. We reckon them true. We step away from sin as though God has already done something to empower that step. Our sins, listen, these are the indicatives. Our sins were laid on Christ. He has given us his perfect righteousness. We don't have to perform to be accepted by God. Those are indicatives. Those are realities. Both the penalty of sin and the power of sin has been broken over my life and your life if you genuinely trusted in Christ. And here's the question of wielding the indicatives. Why should we not live as though that really happened? As though we really have been changed fundamentally by God. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. All things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. Number three, rely on the Holy Spirit. Romans eight thirteen. If you can get there, get there, but I'm just going to read it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. John Owen said, all other ways of mortification are vain. All helps leave us helpless. It must be done by the Spirit. We've got to have the Spirit. There's a a book that's come out recently that I want to read. I've read some blurbs on it. It's called uh, The Snake Charmer. And, uh, And it's a book written by one of the greatest herpetologists, snake studiers who ever lived. And this guy, he broke new ground. He's a world-renowned biologist uh, who had accomplished more things by the age of 41 than most biologists have accomplished in their entire lives. He went on an, an expedition that was of such a degree of difficulty that it had never been mounted. No one had ever tried anything like this. He went into the bottoms, of the foothills of the Himalayas and took a team with him. And they were looking for different kinds of snakes to keep logs. And he found a number of different species of snakes. At one point, it was night, and he stuck his hand into a bag, and he came out with a 10-inch little baby snake hooked on his finger. As a gifted and brilliant herpetologist, he immediately knew exactly what kind of snake it was. It was the most deadly snake in all of Asia, the many-banded crate. He knew, I'm dead. Nobody will get to me in time. We're at the foothills of the Himalayas. There will be no rescue team. And so what does he do? He goes into exploring the effects in his own body. He tells his students who are with him exactly what's going to happen hour by hour. My nervous system will start to shut down. My eyelids will close against my will. Then my respiratory system will begin to be attacked. It'll be painless. My lips will start to swell. Next, and then I'll be killed by asphyxiation. So even during the process of of his death, he's explaining what it is that killed him. You know, 
We can know all of the facts and figures of how to kill sin. But if we don't fight against it with the anti-venom, if we don't fight against it with the power of God's Holy Spirit indwelling and living in us, we'll die just like the next guy. This is very serious. The only reason we have power to overcome sin is because of the indwelling spirit. As we commune with God in prayer, as we open his word, the Holy Spirit is there to shape us, to renew our minds, to increase our affection for God, to make war on the sins that we struggle with. Paul said in Galatians 5.16, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Listen, we are not consigned to a life of powerless victimization at the hands of the world and the flesh and the devil. The Spirit of God lives inside of us. Rely on His power. Our flesh will be weakened. It will. As we walk by the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit will grow and abound more and more. We will be less prone to jealousy than we were. Before, we will be less defensive when accused or sinned against. The Spirit does this as we rely on Him and His Word and as we strive to obey Him by His power. Number four, pursue growth at home. Daniel prayed this during prayer this morning. It's not about the fight. It's about God. Jesus once said to His disciples, Don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you. Rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. So even while we talk about the fight against the flesh or the fight against the world, the fight against the devil, that's just one way of saying we're supposed to pursue what makes for godliness. That's just that's that's a negative way of clarifying what we mean when we say be holy, pursue, walk in righteousness. So are you just thinking when you When you think about your life, are you always and only thinking about the things that you avoid? Or is there a positive, life-affirming pursuit of God? That it's not just simply about me not being in that setting. It's about me pursuing positive traits of fruitfulness and patience and love to others and self-sacrifice and loyalty to my friends and not gossiping. It's, it's, it's about positive pursuits just as well as it's about avoiding negative things. Our Christian maturity is not simply measured by the number of temptations resisted in a year. What positive growth have you pursued? How much clearer is your vision of Jesus Christ as a result of reading God's word this year? Not just asking how many milliseconds did it take for you to click off the Victoria's Secret commercial. Okay, that's one thing. But it's, it's, it's so easy to get into this valiant warrior motif that we're not thinking about everyday righteousness. Everyday expressions of holiness. You can tout yourself as professional sin slayer and somebody can come up and say, are you still hesitant to forgive the person who sinned against you? Well, you know, did I tell you about the time that I walked into the room full of Satanists and started to witness? Well, that's great. I mean, really, that's, that's great. Are you still resistant to correction? <laughs> Did I tell you about the time when I went on the missions trip and uh, I was praying for all the tribes in the Western Hemisphere by name and all the different people groups and I got a word and the word and the impression was in the Huastecan dialect. And, and it, yeah, but 
But have you have you stopped speaking demeaningly to your wife? Okay, righteousness lives right at home. Righteousness is is just as much in the domestics department as it is in foreign areas, foreign fields, big battles. It's everyday growth. Do you still manipulate your spouse? Are you still hesitant to confess your sins? Have you still not been baptized? Spending time communing with God in prayer and in scripture will lead you to everyday growth in the fruit of the spirit and obedience to God's word. And finally, number five, persevere to the end. I love these quotes from John Owen. He said, your state is not at all to be measured by the opposition that sin makes to you, but by the opposition you make to it. Let no man think to kill sin with a few easy or gentle strokes. He who hath once smitten a serpent, if he follow not on his blow until it be slain, may repent that he ever began the quarrel. And so is he who undertakes to deal with sin and pursues it not constantly to death. This is not a passive thing. You don't hang up your sword until you die. I think it was J.I. Packer who said, far from the motto of living the Christian life and doing the Christian battle, far from the motto being, let go and let God, the motto of the New Testament is, trust God and get going. It's not let go and let God, it's trust God and get going. It's not one or the other, it's both. Trusting God as we fight sin, as we pay attention to the besetting sins and the sins, as Hebrews 12 says, that so easily entangle us. You know the places. If you think discerningly and you ask God for help, you will find out where it is that when you get in that zone, you tend to sin. Whether it's the movie theater or the mall. We need to take seriously what's going on in our hearts. Related to this, I've been more and more affected by, as I'm reading through for the third time, we just finished reading Dangerous Journey, which is Pilgrim's Progress, put pictures for kids. It's a fantastic story. I would strongly encourage you to get it and to read it. It will affect you deeply. There are a couple of things, I think, that characterize, the man's name is Christian, that characterize Christian's pursuit. One, is when you read, every time you turn the page, if you, if you read it by diving into the passage, by diving into the, the words, you constantly feel that the wind is in this man's face. Constantly. Battles, struggles from without and from within. He is constantly marching forward. But the second reality that is always on every page behind that is the goal. He never loses sight of the celestial city. Ever. He's always thinking, this will be over. There. But not if I don't keep walking. Both of those perspectives are absolutely essential because we can lose ourselves in the right now, can't we? And lose sight of Romans 8, which talks about so many wonderful things, doesn't it? Adoption of sons. We're led by the Spirit of God. We'll never be condemned. We know the Father's love. And yet, at the end of the chapter, the writer is still groaning. For what? He's groaning to throw off the flesh. He wants to be with God, with Jesus, in that place where he says, it's far better, Philippians. I could stay here, or this would be far better, to be with Christ. 
the biblical vision of the Christian life is clearly your best life later. Not now. That's what keeps our eyes on what's after this. I heard a message from C.J. Mahaney when we were at New Attitude. We're giving it away back there. You should get it. About the two conflicting voices, the voice of the enemy within to dupe us into not believing the promises of God, to dupe us into thinking our lives are spinning out of control, whatever it is, to dupe us into thinking that our sin is too great for God to overcome it. And the voice of the Spirit who uses the Word to refresh our souls. And these two conflicting voices. And I couldn't help but think of the Pilgrim's Progress and think of him constantly looking toward heaven. And the, the scripture that came to mind is in Psalm 86. I think it's verse 11. Where the psalmist says, Unite my heart to fear your name. I think the Christian battle makes us very aware of the fact that, oh God, I look forward to the day when there's only one voice that's talking. There are no more battles, no more struggling against this and that, having to avoid that place and having to fight against this apathy in me that doesn't want God in this moment. Everything in me in that moment will want one thing always. To commune with God. To know God. To rejoice in God. But the fight in the Christian battle is not without a future. We have to look forward. One of the great signs of growth and godliness, Donald Whitney says, is the question, do you yearn more for heaven than you used to? There, my growing lusts will be smothered. I won't wonder what people think of me anymore. I will be in life and lip and thought then what I am in status now. Namely, perfectly righteous. But right now, we're called to fight. That's what God has given us. He holds out the hope of the future and he says, don't stop fighting. As a matter of fact, the cloud of witnesses urge us on now. They are, they are cheering every time that we disarm our sins, our indwelling sins. The host of heaven who crossed the tape, they're saying, don't stop. Don't stop. Let's bow our heads. I can identify with Phil and his father. I remember many nights hearing a faint sound, little emotional bursts every now and then. He tried to keep quiet, walking up the hall, seeing a lamp on in the front room of the house late at night or early in the morning hearing my dad cry out to God to save my soul and to never let me fall. Fathers, where have you stopped fighting? Have you stopped actively fighting in your marriage? Fighting for the glory of God? Have you gotten comfortable with not pursuing your wife with care, with romance? 
servant leadership. Man, we've received a charge. And the Holy Spirit lives within us to execute it for the glory of God. The laziness in us in our marriages has got to die. It's got to be mortified by the Spirit. Have you stopped fighting in your parenting? Maybe you think, you know, my wife connects a lot better with the kids. And they go awry or they do the wrong thing. She's always the one who's able to kind of get through to them. So I just kind of sit back. That's inadequate. You can't hide behind your wife. Your kids need your voice in their lives. Not just your voice on the baseball field. Your voice in the trenches of spiritual warfare. Maybe family worship is something you've never practiced before, but you know God wants your home to be a church within the church. And that he's called you to pastor that little flock. Or maybe it's a big flock. Maybe it's your own personal study in pursuit of God. You're not going very far in your battle against sin, lust, laziness, anger. You're not going to get far without going to the place where the Spirit pours out his grace, his word. You might say, I don't like to read. I hope that changes, but you don't get to wait until that changes. You've got to read. You must, must read. You must read God's word. Without it, you can't fight. His word will show you who he is, what his call is on your life. He'll show you his purpose for your marriage and your family. Fathers, don't stop swinging the sword. Don't stop fighting. Your life depends upon it. Remember what... Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, pay close attention to your life and to the teaching of God's word. For in so doing, you hear the gravity of this. Fathers, hear the gravity of this. For by paying close attention to your life and to God's word, you will save both your own life and those who hear you. Fathers, your children hear you. What do they hear you saying? Things that are life affirming, things that check their sin. And confront their disobedience lovingly and with the grace of, of the gospel? Or do they hear you on a tirade running through the house? We need God's grace. Let's stand together.
that in spite of your complaining at the beginning of the message about your assignment, I was again proven right. <laughs> if you want to call CJ and tell him that, that'd be fine. Uh, listen, when we, when we began to delve into this series, uh, trying to think through what angle to get at it, these unholy trinity of the flesh, the world, and the devil, which one do you start with? Because they're all on the, on the, on the field. Uh, we felt led to start with this one. I think because the fight for all of us begins inside of us. When you awake in the morning, there's already someone in your house. And then you get to meet the ones that are in the world encounter the demonic as well but this is this is where the battle is I believe most significantly fought and we're going to learn I'm not trying to take anything away from the other two messages that will be coming in July about the importance of, of fighting the world and the importance of fighting the spiritual powers and principalities that are around us very very important but what was interesting that when Jesus highlighted having to face the devil, he says, though he is coming, he has nothing in me. See, when you go to face the world and you go to face the devil, if you've got hooks hanging off of your body, you're going to get hooked by the world and you're going to get hooked by the devil. If there are any hooks, the fight can come all at once. It needs a hook in us. So you have a couple of weeks before. We did this intentionally. We didn't do back-to-back-to-back messages because uh, we just felt led to spread this out a little bit. So you have a few weeks to work on this one. And what I want to encourage us to do, I want to encourage us to relocate the fight. I think this is the territory that we least like to go into. We'd much rather watch Fox News and get all mad about the politics that are out there and the liberal media. <laughs> Boy, we need to be praying, church. Right? We get all jazzed up and lit. Angry. We are so hostile about that. And then if you've been in the church for a long time, aren't you just angry about the condition of the church? Aren't you? Just this church world right now. It's so worldly and brothers, the church needs to be prayed for and we're all hostile and angry about the compromise going on. Listen, I want to tell you, there's two sets of Christians in this room right now. There are new Christians who what you heard today, you hadn't heard before. And now you must pick it up and fight with it. And there's another set who are old Christians who've heard all this before. And we're all for fighting except for some of the issues that Matt listed don't seem to make the list. Please, uh, be affected. Be personally offended. How Matt mentioned how passionate we can be about praying for world missions. But yet, treat our wife poorly. Don't lead in our home. Now, listen, I want to relocate the fight because Matt mentioned this question. Why have you stopped fighting? You went through categories. Why have you not stopped fighting in your marriage? Why have you stopped fighting in your parenting? Why have you stopped fighting in areas like modesty? Listen, you can fight those things 
and you're fighting in the wrong territory. You want to fight those things effectively? Answer the question why you stop fighting. You stop fighting because the enemy, the real enemy, was within you. You stop fighting. You stop fighting not because your wife or your husband or your children won't cooperate with you. That's part of fighting. Right? When you take the basketball floor, you expect the other team to lay down. Why did you stop playing? Because they were playing defense. No, you stopped playing in the fourth quarter because you're out of shape. You stopped fighting not because you met resistance, but because you're lazy. Stand in line behind me. That's why we stop fighting. Listen, we don't stop fighting because there's resistance. A boxing match involves an opponent. It involves overcoming the other person. I stopped fighting because that person was more difficult than I thought? No. You stopped fighting because you're lazy. You stopped fighting because you're prideful. And you want the attention that immodesty creates in you. Oh, I'll fight the Victoria's Secret thing. It fights the fact that in you is a craving for something. That's where you better relocate the fight. So ask for some help from God here to relocate our real opponent here. Stop thinking, well, my children are the opponent. My wife is the opponent. No, 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 no. We're not fighting because in me is a craving and a desire for something different than righteousness. I better fight that because if my pride remains big and you don't treat me the way I, I tried to lead the family in a devotion Y'all disrespected me. So I didn't do that again. Oh, really? That's your kid's problem? No, you crave too much approval from them. Step back in the arena and fail again. I don't like to fail. Well, your fight's in the wrong spot right now, isn't it? It's in here. Listen, we can talk about fighting the devil. How many of y'all would rather just have learned prayers today about how to bind the devil? We're going to stomp on the devil's neck. Now listen, there's a place for us to learn how to do that effectively. I mean, if you don't do this, how much of Christianity is being fought on the wrong ground? This was the right place to start. So let's, let's close in prayer. Lord, Lord, help us to relocate the primary battle for us. I need to wake up in the morning ready to fight the enemies that crept into the attic who are in my house with me. And they're probably the ones that I know way too familiarly. Lord, they were probably with me when I was a teenager. Maybe even when I was a kid. My mom always said I was argumentative. (laughs) And I still am. She said I was a smart aleck then. And I'm still a smart aleck. They thought I was lazy then, never cleaned my room up. And I'm still dealing with that issue. Lord, the enemies are in here. And we have fighting to do, oh God. Lord, I pray right now you would give us the Holy Spirit birth hostility in our hearts. The way in which we feel about those who favor abortion. Or those who want to create laws to approve same-sex marriages and where our back is all up about that and it should be that's unrighteous it opposes the glory of God but oh God that I would realize my pride 
opposes the glory of God. And I have every ability by the Spirit to fight against it. My laziness, God, opposes your glory. And I don't have to watch the news to learn about it. It's in me. Oh God, I want to see triumph over that. I want to see animation in my life. I want to leap out of my lazy condition. I want to lay hold of the promises of God. And I want to fight tenaciously. And I don't want to let go of I may not see them right now in the natural, but God, I want to fight for them in the Spirit. And I don't want my laziness to tell me to sit down and give up because somebody else threw a punch at me. The punches are coming, Lord. Give me the grace to relocate the fight. Keep us on the court, God. Keep us on the court. Fighting overcoming first the enemies in us and then taking your kingdom into all this world even into the realms of the world that we don't see with the natural eyes that you see let the fight begin right in here in Jesus name Amen Amen God bless you guys thank you Matt it's outstanding